Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we welcome Nina Teichholz. like well, what does pharma have to do with food but the reality is is that let's just take for instance the insulin industry do they want people reversing their diabetes probably they would say they do but the reality is is that if somebody comes off all their insulin they are zeroed out as a profit line for that company so the insulin manufacturers do not have an interest in reversing chronic disease and that's just you can just Make the same story for the statin manufacturers. They want a drug solution, not a dietary solution to disease. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, thank you for pressing play today. Super grateful you decided to press play and you're not going to regret it because today we have an amazing resource, Nina Teicholz. When I first listened to her book in 2015 and then ended up reading her book, it opened up a whole new world to me. I started to really understand why industrial seed oils, vegetable oils are so bad for you and what happened with the saturated fat demonization, the propaganda that took place, the history of this fat phobia that started to happen in the 1950s with Ansel Keys, President Eisenhower. She's going to share about that. Her book that I'm referencing is The Big Fat Surprise. This book is such a great resource if you really want to understand the history of fat and why these healthy fats have been demonized for so many years and are still being demonized. We get into her book. We get into why she decided to write the book, why she became obsessed with fat. We also get into, which I really loved, the chemistry of saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats. If you could really understand the biochemical structure of each of these fats, then you could understand and know why it's healthy for you or not healthy for you. This might be a part of the episode you want to rewind a couple times to really get it. But once you nail it, nobody could convince you otherwise because it's the fact of the chemical structure. You learn about double bonds and oxidation and attracting oxygen. We also get into the cell membrane structure. Life begins and ends in the cell membrane. It is such an important part of the human body. The intelligence is within that cell. And we also bring up the topic of fish oil. If you've been following my work, you know that I am not a fan of fish oil. Fish oil is rancid. It causes more problems than good. Even the best fish oil, I mean, I've beat this horse so many times, but I wanted to know because Nina Teicholz, she crosses her T's, she dots her I's. She is a world-renowned 
investigative journalist, meaning she does her research. So I wanted to ask her if her research on fish oil lines up with my research. Is she for fish oil or is she against it? Does she see it as a PUFA like I do, inflammatory, or is she saying it could be healthy for you? Well, wait till you hear that answer. We also get into red meat and many of the myths that are being spewed out there, especially by the vegan propaganda movement about red meat and diabetes, red meat and colorectal cancer, red meat and heart disease. She's going to debunk a lot of these myths. You're going to hear about her mission to change the food recommendations by the government with her nutritioncoalition.us program, which I donate to and I support. We'll drop a link for them down below. And then we get into something that I just found out during the recording, a new book she's writing about the vegan propaganda movement. So I can't wait to bring her on the show. You are going to love Nina. But before I do, let me take a minute here to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Carolyn W.A. titled, Loving the Show. I just started listening to Keto Camp two weeks ago, and I am addicted. I am a registered nurse, and I love the way Ben backs his information with evidence-based. I'm amazed how much misinformation is being fed to us. I have shared so many episodes with my friends and family. I am hooked. Thank you, Ben, for the education you share. I appreciate you so very much. Carolyn, I appreciate you so very much as well. Thank you for being on the front lines, being a registered nurse. We appreciate you so much for doing that. And I'm also so grateful that you're not only listening, but you're sharing it with your friends and your family. Thank you so much for leaving the show a rating and a review. Hey, if you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet, what are you waiting for? Hit pause, scroll down, Leave that rating and review. It really helps the show grow. Maybe I'll give you a shout out and read your review on the next episode. A few times per year, me and the Keto Camp team launch a seven-day keto challenge. It's free. We bring on different speakers. The last one we did was a complete hit. And we officially have the dates for the next one and our confirmed speakers So I'm going to announce that right now on today's show. You ready? So the next Keto Kickstart Challenge is going to take place April 10th, Monday, April 10th, and it's going to run all the way until April 17th, the following Monday. Seven days in a row, seven sessions. Each session is about two hours each. Here are the confirmed speakers. Are you ready for this? Our first confirmed speaker is Dr. Jason Fung, the legend, the father of fasting, (laughs) medical doctor who has written great books like The Obesity Code, The Cancer Code, The PCOS Plan. He's a New York Times bestselling author. I don't really have to give his bio. You know who he is. He's a legend, and he is a confirmed speaker for our challenge. We also have Dr. Ken Berry, medical doctor, the Mr. Proper Human Diet himself. He is a confirmed speaker as well. And then we have Dr. Annette Boz. You probably follow her on her wonderful YouTube channel, Dr. Boz. She's going to be on the challenge. We have some other other special guests too that I'm not going to announce. Those are the the three confirmed that I'll share with you today. We are also going to be giving away over $10,000 in free prizes from supplements to 
a one-year membership to our signature course, the Keto Camp Academy, to exogenous ketones, and a lot of stuff. The challenge is completely free. All you need to do is head over to ketocampchallenge.com. Remember, camp is spelled with a K. Ketocampchallenge.com. You can see the details and then sign up. There is an option to upgrade your membership, and uh, you can do that if you want, but if not, it's completely free. Seven days. We'll take a deep dive together. We'll drop that link down below as well. I am so pumped up. This is going to be our best one yet, by the way. All right, let's have an amazing conversation with Nina Teicholz. Nina Teicholz is a professor at NYU's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, a group devoted to evidence-based nutrition policy. She's also an investigative science journalist and author. Her international bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise, has upended the conventional wisdom on dietary fat, especially saturated fat, and challenged the very core of our nutrition policy. Let's have an awesome conversation with Nina. Here she is. All right, Nina Teicholz, thank you so much for joining me on the Keto Camp Podcast today. Hi, Ben. It's great to be here. I have just loved your work for so many years. Something I admire about you is your tenacity to research. And it is just so impressive how attention to detail you are with your research. Your book, The Big Fat Surprise, uh, this came out in 2014. I think I listened to it in 2015. And then I ended up buying the book and reading it because it was just so dense. It's such a great resource. And it debunks a lot of the myths out there. And it separates the different types of studies and how to review it and how to help the average person understand studies, which is a big problem. So off the bat, I just want to say thank you for being obsessed with the research. <laughs> it is such a blessing to me and my audience. Well, thank you. I mean, I guess there's some benefit in like having an OCD personality. <laughs> but it really did. It took me, you know, I read thousands of studies to to write that book. I, it took me um, almost a decade of research. And you know, I don't know if you know, but when I started, I was a vegetarian. I wasn't eating any red meat. I hadn't eaten butter in decades. And I really, it was only by researching it that I, I convinced myself that everything I had been doing was wrong. Um, and it takes a long time. I mean, you know, and probably your audience knows that when you eat a certain way for a long period of time, it's really hard to imagine that you might have gotten it just 100% wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Even though you have like a lot of evidence, like you're not losing weight, you're not getting healthy, but you just think, but how, it's just, just I'm just, I need to try harder at what I've been told. What was the turning point for, for you? What what ended up flipping that switch during that journey? Well, it's it's really interesting because I, I have heard from so many people, um, I guess people who've read my book who said, you know, I read it, I got it, and then I changed the way that I ate forever, and now I'm I'm in perfect health. And for me, it was a very slow journey of having to convince myself. I don't think there was any one moment, but um, I remember just like, trying to disprove myself over and over and over again. And, and which is what you're supposed to do as a journalist or a scientist, or somebody involved in science. And then finally being convinced like, well, you know, this, this has to be right because I cannot find any holes in this argument. And I gradually changed the way I ate, but it, for me, it was slow. It was a slow 
changeover. It took a while to change my habits. So what ended up happening where you became obsessed with, and those are your words, I heard you say that actually, you became obsessed with studying fats out of the three macronutrients. Why did you decide to become obsessed with fats? Um, <laughs> it sounds weird as a, as a devotion of your life, but I was actually assigned uh, a working journalist doing a series of investigative stories for Gourmet Magazine, and they assigned me a story on trans fats. At the t- this is the early 2000s, and I had no idea what anything about dietary fat, except for that I was following a low-fat diet. So I started to dive into this whole area of study. I uh, came to know the work of Gary Taubes. I came to know the work of other people before him who had, who had done enormous research pointing out the flaws in the low-fat diet. And I became, I started talking to researchers, and it just amazed me what I found. This is not so long ago. It's It's... Little less than twenty years ago now, but you know, I would call up researchers and they would say, "If you're going to take the Gary Taubes line, um, I'm just going to have to hang up the phone right now." That people, researchers, scientists at universities, terrified to talk about fat. There was one scientist I uh, called up who described being heckled at meetings for her findings that challenged the healthfulness of trans fats. Then I found the scientist who had been hired by the vegetable oil industry to heckle her at meetings and that there were people in industry who were hired to give scientists like her a hard time. And then she had had people visit her from the margarine industry trying to yank her papers out of journals. I mean, the stories were so incredible. I realized there was something really wrong going on here that had such enormous implications and it was a mystery. And I felt like I just have to get to the bottom of this mystery. I had no idea that it would take me so long to do that. <laughs> so what, that's interesting. So they were hired to heckle and to kind of make these individuals seem like they were crazy. Like they had no idea. They were, they were uh, wackos, if you will. Do you think, and not to feed into like cynicism or anything like that, but do you think this might be happening on social media? Because I do, when I personally post about vegetable oils and I have studies, I do have some nutritionists and dietitians and even doctors, especially on TikTok, come after me and do what you just said, heckle me, create videos, making fun of me. Do you think that might be going on in social media right now? Oh, absolutely. I think that nutrition science from the very beginning had heavy influence by the food industry. And they had certain products and beliefs that they needed to preserve. And so the vegetable oil industry wanted to go after anybody for attacking vegetable oils in any way. And so not only do they heckle at meetings, but they would, this particular woman, they would call her names. They would um, they would just try to assassinate her character. They would suggest she's crazy. I'm talking that they would do this in print, in peer-reviewed journals. Of course, there was no social media back then, but you see the same tactics happening today. You see that all sorts of ad hominem attacks, which means attacking the, their personality, their integrity, accusing them of having financial motives. That happens on a regular basis to any of us who speak or talk or write about any of these issues in a way that challenges those food interests. It's shocking to see what goes on in social media. I recently did a post. I mean, I've had a lot of attacks coming my way, but I recently did a post that challenged the American Diabetes Association and its policy to basically tell people to continue eating a high carbohydrate diet, which as you know, is terrible for people with um, diabetes. And there was clearly a campaign unleashed against me 
by all sorts of bots and people who were sent to my team, all these people sent to me to, to kind of just harass me. Wow. And how do you deal with that? Like, what, what is your first initial thought process and response when that starts to happen? Well, I think these tactics have very specific intentions, which is not only to attack you personally, which is to say that this person is going to think twice again uh, before sticking their neck out. So it's trying to make it so unpleasant for people to be in this field that they, they just don't bother. And I interviewed and have talked to many scientists who did, in fact, just leave science altogether because they were attacked so often. And they literally, they said it made me paranoid about my papers because everything would be subjected to attacks and scrutiny and letters to the editor. The other function of what is basically these bullying techniques is to, to send the alarm to people who are observing. So other journalists, other scientists, other people in the field who say, you know, I don't, I don't want that happening to me. I, I don't need that. It's bad karma. I don't need, you know, to have that negative energy. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to be subject to that kind of negative energy. And so it makes people self-censor. We see this now in many ways in many different fields, but it causes self-censorship, people dropping out of the field, young scientists saying, I'm not going into that line of research because it will obviously be unrewarding to my career. Mm. Well, that makes you even more special because you just kept going and you you are you keep going, <laughs> even even with the arrows. So kudos to you. And, and when you're competent, you're going to be confident with your message like you are. Let's continue talking about veg, speaking about vegetable oils. I talk about it a lot. And let's get into like first the chemical structure of these PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids versus saturated fatty acids and monounsaturated fats, fat, monounsaturated fats. What are the differences in the actual chemical structure with these three fats? Okay, here's our little brief chemistry lesson. So fatty acids are long carbon chains um, with also with what's called carboxyl groups. But you just have a picture of a long chain of carbons. And polyunsaturated fats, poly is means many. And those fats, there are many double bonds. And each time there's a double bond in the chain, it kinks the chain. So they're squiggly molecules. And that means that they can't stack up neatly on top of each other. And so they're oils because they're, they can't be densely, they can't be pushed against each other to create something that's a solid like butter. So you're talking about corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, all those oils are polyunsaturated fats. And the key thing about those double bonds is that in conditions of you know light, temperature, especially temperature, those double bonds open up and each one of them will attach to an oxygen. So that's oxidation, right? And the reason that we all know about oxidation is we're told don't, you know, take your antioxidants to prevent oxidation from happening because oxidation leads to inflammation in the body. And inflammation is sort of at the root of many diseases, especially heart disease. Why you measure inflammatory factors like CRP when you go to the doctor. So that's polyunsaturated vegetable oils. And then there's monounsaturated fats, which is the same carbon chain, but with one double bond, mono. And that is mainly um, oleic acid, which is predominantly in olive oil. That's the one. So if you want to use an oil, it's better to use olive oil because it only has one double bond, only one opportunity to oxidize. And then there's saturated fats. And saturated literally means that the carbon chain is, there's, it's all saturated with hydrogens and it has no double bonds, and that is a flat chain, and that is why those molecules stack up on top of each other, and they make a they make a solid. 
And that's why butter is solid or ghee or duck fat or coconut butter or you know, any of those fats or tallow is lard. solid. Lard, we're, we're bringing back lard, right, Nina? Lard is, is, lard is, is a mix. It dep- and what you want is a low oleic lard, which means low in the unsaturated and higher in the saturated fats. Saturated fats are actually good for you because there's no opportunity to oxidize. There are no double bonds. You heat them and they remain stable. That's why saturated fats are actually the best for cooking and then they're healthiest for eating because they do not oxidize or cause inflammation. Mm, if you just understood that right there, the chemical structure of it, and the way I heard you explain it is like a monounsaturated fat has one bond. So it's like one hand out there that might attract some oxygen, but it doesn't have these double bonds that are all over the place. Uh, Dr. K. Shanahan always says, poofas go poof, you know, attracting oxygen, oxidizing, kind of like biting into an apple and leaving it on the counter. That's that oxidation. And with that being said, I, I talk about fish oil and fish oil has even more of these bonds than a, a regular vegetable oil, which is surprising to a lot of people. Nina, have you, I don't know if you've mentioned it in the book, but have you done any research on fish oil and uh, this process? I actually did a whole chapter on fish oils that we ended up not putting in the book. So I, oh, I really looked into it. I still think I have to publish that somewhere, but I... Um, Please do so. I want to hear that. I want to read that. Super interesting because you're right. Um, uh, those omega-3 fatty acids, and we're talking to the ones that come in fish, are called EPA and DHA. And they do have a lot of double bonds in them. And they, those are unsaturated. And if you get fish oils in capsules that they will go rancid over time. They'll do the same thing that that vegetable oils do, which is they will oxidize and go bad over time. And that is, I think, why they've never been able to show, despite doing large randomized controlled clinical trials, this is like the gold standard of science, where they fed supplements of EPA and DHA to people, and they could not show any cardiovascular benefit in terms of long-term outcomes. They could not show that, whereas... In the couple trials, there's really one trial that looked at fish. If you ate these, you ate your omega-3s in fish, that that seemed to show some benefit. But really, the whole fish oil industry is not confirmed by clinical trials. And I think that's because when you take the oils out of the fish, they just, they are not protected by the whole food and they oxidize and go rancid pretty quickly. When we think about fish oil, some of my research, about 83% of it is already rancid before you even consume it. But even if it's like one of the best fish oils out there, there's some companies that do it a different way to extract it. From what I've seen, when that fish oil mixes with warm body temperature, stomach acids, it could convert it to an oxidized fat, which could potentially take some antioxidants to deal with that. And those antioxidants would have been dealing with other things. And, and I'm curious if you wrote about this in that, that chapter that you got to release, the brain for a large adult requires about 7.2 milligrams of EPA and DHA. And one capsule of fish oil on average has about 1,000 milligrams. So what's the problem with this super physiological overdose of EPA and DHA? Have you looked into any of that? You know, I didn't, but I will, um, and I'm impressed by what you know, but I, I, I will add, you know, a, a, a different angle on this, which is that the omega-3s, they compete in the cell membrane with the omega-6s. So you have omega-3s and omega-6s. And really what you want is, you, you want high omega-3s, but you really want an omega-3 to omega-6 ratio that is pretty high, right? You want more omega-3s and very low omega-6s. And the scientist who described this to me said, the only way, you know, 
you can take omega-3s to get there, but the far better way to get that ratio in good proportion is to reduce what he called the tsunami of omega-6s coming into the diet. Mm. right? You don't need to take omega-3 supplements. You don't particularly need to even worry about eating a lot of seafood if you reduce the omega-6s that are coming, just flooding into the diet. I assume that your listeners know about that the greatest increase in any food stuff in the history of the last century has been this the omega-6s that we now eat in our diet now, by some estimates, over 10% of all calories, but at least up to 9 or 10%. Yeah, I like that suggestion. And I agree. Reduce your omega-6. No need to supplement with omega-3. The body will balance it out. With that being said, I think omega-6 in itself is not good or bad, but it's the adulterated omega-6. I mean, the cell membrane uh, is about 28 to 33% omega-6. So we do want some quality omega-6, but we don't want the adulterated omega-6. Are you on board with that message? I think, you know, when you're talking about linoleic and linolenic acid, which are the two polyunsaturated, most unstable fats, you really, you know, they, they're noted that they're essential, but you really need so little of it. And you will get that through your natural foods that there's really no reason to seek out eating those omega-6s at all. I mean, you know, all foods are a combination of fatty acids, right? Everything. There's no such thing as a food that is only one fatty acid, like even fruits and vegetables, everything but sugar has a combination of fatty acids in it. And so you can get those unsaturated fatty acids in meat and dairy and vegetables. I mean, you can get them in all kinds of foods and you don't have to eat some vegetable oil in order to obtain what you need. Mm, Well said. And, uh, I, I love that suggestion. Um, omega-6, you could get it, and you, your body could actually make its own EPA and DHA from these parent essential oils that you could get from natural foods. That's a much better option. The fish oil industry, I believe, has been adopted by, by Big Pharma, and uh, there's a lot of money to be made from it. But let's transition. That was awesome. I, I hope you released that in a chapter. We, we, we want to read it. I will make a note. <laughs> yes, please make a note. Let's get into the history a little bit of uh, what went wrong in the 1950s with uh, Ansel Keys and President Eisenhower. You talk about it in the book, but maybe if you can kind of give us a recap of what happened back then. Yeah. I mean, I think now a lot of people have heard this story, but really how we got this belief that fat and cholesterol and animal foods were bad for health began in the 1950s when the U.S. was really in a panic over the rising tide of heart disease, which had been virtually non-existent in the early 1900s and had risen quite quickly, especially in the 1930s, to become the number one killer. And you'd have to imagine, like, being a young man, you had your, your father had not died from heart disease, and all of a sudden, you know, people were dying from heart disease, just dropping dead. So, and all of this became sort of focused this panic was really focused when President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack in 1955, and it was out of the Oval Office for 10 days. Right? Just imagine, we had President Trump was out of the office for 24 hours, and nothing else was on TV. It was like everybody, the whole That's nation's true. attention was completely focused on what was going on with the president. And his doctor, Dr. Paul White, he was convinced by Ansel Keys and the idea that it was saturated fats and dietary cholesterol that caused heart disease. And this is not to say that there weren't other theories at the, at the time. There was an idea that it was maybe vitamin deficiency that caused heart disease, or the rising tide of auto exhaust, or the type A personality where you run around and then you know you just 
die of a heart attack because you scream at people too much. All of these were competitive theories that were proposed by distinguished scientists. But Ansel Keys, um, I believe really by the virtue of his personality, he's incredibly persuasive. He could, according to his friends, argue anyone to the death. He just was a very self-confident and, and persuasive personality. And he was able to get his ideas implanted not only, I mean, he was able to convey his ideas in such a way that not only was the president's doctor convinced, but he was also able to get them adopted, really importantly, by the American Heart Association. So he joins the Nutrition Committee of the American Heart Association. And in 1961, even though there was no clinical trial evidence, which you understand, no rigorous evidence, he was able to get the American Heart Association to basically adopt his whole hypothesis. And they came out with a statement saying, don't eat the first statement anywhere in the world saying, avoid saturated fat and cholesterol in order to prevent heart attacks. And this came into a total vacuum. And there, you know, imagine there's just, there's sort of a demand by the public for something that will stop heart disease. And this idea became the reigning idea of the time. Um, that statement by the American Heart Association sort of grew from that little kernel, that one statement into the entire vast system we have now where all authorities basically recommend replacing saturated fats with with unsaturated vegetable oils. Yeah, we're still dealing with that in 2021 <laughs> from that one statement. Well, Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. It's what's really amazing and sort of the heart of my book is the fact that many scientists and authorities understood that the Heart Association had been premature, that there wasn't enough rigorous evidence. And so they undertook large randomized controlled clinical trials. They did them in mental institutions, the kind of experiment you can't do anymore today because it's considered unethical, but it means you can really control people's food because they're institutionalized. You have them there three meals a day. And they did these experiments where, you know, half the group would get a diet that was considered normal in saturated fats, which at the time was 18% saturated fats, which was sort of unimaginable to the mainstream today. And the other group would get, you know, soy filled milk and whatever their version of the impossible burger was. And, you know, altogether a diet of 9% saturated fats. And at the end of all these experiments, they could not get the results that they had hoped for, which is to say that none of these experiments, which tested altogether some 76,000 people, it's just in a massive wow. body of scientific knowledge in countries all over the world, none of these experiments showed that reducing saturated fats would make you live longer from anything or you know any disease or would reduce your cardiovascular mortality. In other words, it didn't spare you a heart attack or, or cardiac death from heart disease. And then the story of what happened to all that, that science and those studies is that they were, you know, they went unpublished, they were ignored, they weren't cited, they fell from view, they, they were just, it was just inconvenient data that we are still ignoring today. Yeah, when you go to the supermarket, you see canola oil, soybean oil, and it has that stamp on there, you know, approved by the American Heart Association. I mean, how, how are they even able to get away with that, Nina? It's truly extraordinary to me. I feel like you almost need to take a comedic approach to trying to understand how it's possible to continue to ignore so much scientific literature. I mean, because over the past decade, due to my book and the work of other people, 
teams of scientists from around the world have gone back and looked at all those kind of lost trials that we were just talking about. And they have evaluated them and analyzed them and done meta-analyses and systematic reviews. And now there are more than 20 papers published in the field that have concluded that we got it wrong on saturated fats. Then that there is not data to justify the limits that we are placed, that authorities are placing on them. The way that American Heart Association gets away with what it's doing is that it ignores all that work. It ignores all those 20 papers and its own review of those clinical trials, some of which it funded and then never talked about, is that they only look at the effect on the LDL, your low-density lipoprotein, your LDL cholesterol, which is an intermediate marker and far less reliable. And the American Heart Association ignores all the heart outcome data. In other words, the data, far more reliable data on heart attacks, cardiovascular events, and death. Which are what? Well, can you state some of those? Well, this is what I'm saying. All these trials, they went long enough to have these hard outcomes. It's really super valuable data because it's hard to run a trial long enough to get that data. It's really easy to run a three-month trial and look at the effect on LDL, HDL, but to run a trial long enough to get what's called hard outcome data on deaths and cardiovascular events. That's what all these studies did. When the American Heart Association reviewed those studies, it just ignored the hard outcome data. It just ignored all this most valuable data that we have and said, well, saturated fats do have an effect on LDL cholesterol. We're going to ignore the fact that saturated fats raise your good cholesterol, and we're just going to focus on the LDL effects. Mm. And if you look only at the LDL effects and ignore everything else, you can come to the conclusion that saturated fats might be bad for heart disease. But it's only by ignoring this vast quantity of really valuable data. And they continue to do this. In the last lifestyle statement that came out just a few weeks ago, they continue to just say, we're ignoring all the other data, all these 20 other papers, and we are only relying on our own review of the data. That's crazy. You know, it makes me think when, when people start to understand what's going on and what has happened with these guidelines, how are people supposed to even trust the government when it comes to what they want to promote for our health? It, it makes people skeptical, right? If, if we see what's happened and what's still going on, and then the government is recommending something, how would we you know, want to be able to trust them, especially during like a pandemic like this? It just makes me think that people might be thinking that. I think it's a very difficult quandary that the public has been placed in, which is that on some subjects, we have authorities who just simply are obviously not reliable. They have vested interests. They have, it's very hard to change positions to flip-flop on your public that you want to trust you. You may have liability issues for changing your advice. You have all kinds of food companies and pharmaceutical companies that support your position and are invested in your in this particular position. And so it is very hard for authorities to dramatically change their advice and to backstep on something that they've been telling the public and the public has trusted them for for decades. Right. So that creates a really difficult position as a citizen of the United States. I would like to be able to trust my government. And yet, you know, we have this really... I think glaring example where they're 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 obviously ignoring the science. I mean, what the American Heart Association did, which is to put on blinders and not see those twenty systematic reviews on saturated fats, the U.S. government 
expert committee did the same thing. Mm. They pretended like those studies didn't exist. They didn't want to look at them. There were former Dietary Guideline Committee members who met with high-level officials at the agencies responsible for the guidelines, and they just couldn't get through to them. I think it's really a challenge when you have so many vested interests in a certain kind of what is really a dogma. Absolutely. Do you have a vested interest with the meat industry, Nina? (laughs) No, I have a policy of not accepting any industry funds at all. I don't, and nor does the group that I run called the Nutrition Coalition. We don't accept any industry funds of any kind. What happened to me was that I became the victim, really, of a whisper campaign by some well-known scientists who were sort of running around saying, Nina takes money from the meat industry. And this is exactly what Ansel Keys did to his enemies. When we talked about bullying a little earlier, one of the tactics was to say that you had financial motives. And to just start these whisper campaigns, Ansel Keys did the same thing to John Yudkin, a professor who had a competing hypothesis about heart disease. And it was Yudkin's idea that it was sugar that was Mm. causing heart disease. And Ansel Keys recognized this as a threat to his own hypothesis. And so he, um, in a published journal, was criticizing Yudkin and accusing him of having sort of vague financial backers and sort of demolished his reputation. So, wow. so I'm just the latest in that chapter. And there are others, you know, we, there's, it's just a common tactic that is used. I heard you say that there's not a single member in Congress who does not receive donations from the pharmaceutical companies. Is that right? That's what I've read. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's what makes it very difficult to gain political support for changing our food guidelines. It seems strange, like what does pharma have to do with food? But the reality is, is that let's just take, for instance, the insulin industry. Do they want people reversing their diabetes? Probably they would say they do, but the reality is, is that if somebody comes off all their insulin, they are zeroed out as a profit line for that company. So the insulin manufacturers do not have an interest in reversing chronic disease. And that's just, you can just make the same story for the statin manufacturers. They want a drug solution, not a dietary solution to disease. And that makes it tremendously difficult to gain the kind of political support that you would need to really change the food system. Makes it very challenging. Let's talk about red meat. You know, on your book, you have a cover of a piece of meat. Looks delicious. Why did you decide (laughs) to put this on the cover of your book? You know, I really did not know how controversial red meat was. (laughs) I I probably wouldn't do the same thing today. And red meat has become infinitely more controversial in the years since that book was published. But, you know, my thinking was, our our thinking, the marketing team's thinking at the time was just, you know, people love meat. There's going to be a lot of people who want to know why they can eat that piece of meat and they'll buy the book. But I think it alienates a lot of people who, you know, we have now sort of come to have a moral, almost moral revulsion against meat. I'm not saying we, but I'm saying there has been this idea that like, if you eat meat, you're a bad person. You don't believe in climate change. You're not doing your part to protect the climate and you don't care about killing animals. And so there's this kind of moral revulsion that has been created against meat, which is really, it's a a true shame because I think that it's it's left us in a position where 
many of our most, you know, our, our influencers in the spheres of science and public health are have vilified really one of the healthiest foods on the planet, one that is so nutrient dense and that children need to grow and that really was developed by humans in order to have a, a convenient and cheap source of protein and we that we need to to thrive. So you know, I was not a meat eater for a really long time. And I just had that belief that I think many people do like, it's just bad for you, you might as well cut it out to lose weight or not. I mean, whatever it is, there must be something bad with bad about it. But it was quite a remarkable journey to, to discover how, how none of the accusations against me turned out to be true. Let's talk about the accusations. Because when I when I post about meat, um, you know, there are some common themes out there. You know, I heard meat causes diabetes. I mean, how could that be possible? Can we debunk that right off the bat? Yeah, I mean, diabetes is caused by elevated blood sugars. What causes elevated blood sugars is sugar and things that turn to sugar in your bloodstream, like any kind of carbohydrate, fruit or bread or starches, any of that. So where's the glucose? Where's the sugar in meat? It's just non-existent. And so it's impossible that meat would cause diabetes. Also, if you just look at the epidemiology, which is you know, is not the most convincing, but red meat consumption has gone down by something like 28% since 1970 to 2015. While diabetes, type 2 diabetes especially, but has all diabetes just skyrocketed out of control. So, I mean, it's very, you cannot see red meat as fueling the diabetes crisis. What about red meat and colorectal cancer? That's a common one I get too. Well, so that because that is the one decision that was made by the WHO, the WHO, they decided that red meat was and processed meats were causes of colorectal cancer. Now, just a little, you know, larger context: the the WHO has found that almost everything causes cancer, but that decision was based on this kind of weak science that is called epidemiological or observational studies that shows associations, but not causation, right? So lots of things are found to be associated with each other, but it doesn't mean that one thing causes another. Like you, there's an association between yellow fingers, tips and lung cancer, but is it the yellow fingertips or is it the cigarettes that you're smoking that is giving you yellow fingertips? That's just one tiny example of why these associational studies are unreliable. You know, it's also they rely upon data that is self-reported, dietary data, and we all lie about what we eat. And that data has been shown definitively that it's it's not reliable and can't be confirmed in many instances. So when you have an association, if you're going to trust it, it has to be a very big association. Like association between smoking and lung cancer is on the order of 15 to 30 times higher risk for lung cancer among heavy smokers versus never smokers, right? That's a big association. The association for red meat and cancer is 1.17 or 1.18. The first one is for fresh meat and the second one is for processed meat. So one means no association. So you're saying it's a 0.17 or 0.18 increase, I mean, compare that to 50 to 30 times the in the lung, lung cancer example. It's just these are tiny associations. And in general, outside of the field of nutrition epidemiology and the field of epidemiology in general, they will say that any association that's smaller than two or three 
is not reliable because there's so many other variables going on. You can't even really consider it. So why did the WHO make this decision? I think that it's a bigger discussion about the bias against red meat. I did an analysis and most of the people on that panel analyzing red meat had been spent most of their careers publishing papers against red meat for their own dietary reasons or their own biases. But it was a panel that it's fair to say was stacked against red meat. And I also knew people who went there and participated in the meetings and they said they had data to the contrary that was ignored. There's two clinical trials, large clinical trials that attempted to in which red meat was dramatically reduced that did not show any reduction in cancer. So that's a more rigorous form of data that was not included in the WHOs in their sort of the data that they considered. It's crazy. So it is crazy. I mean, it shows you that this is a subject that has just become so conflated by politics and vested interests of many kinds that it's it's a really difficult subject to try to get to the bottom of because I, I think it's the information channels are just, um, they're very convoluted by all these vested interests. I want to take a quick break here to share with you about the dangers of taking fish oil. I know, shocking. I was somebody who took fish oil every single day for years. And then I came across a ton of research showing the dangers of consuming fish oil. I immediately found an amazing product called Pureform. Pureform is a plant-based omega. And the cool thing about Pureform is that it is uniquely processed with nitrogen to preserve it and make sure it does not oxidize. These essential fatty acids are cold pressed and you get the proper balance of omega-6 and omega-3 to feed your cells what it desires. We know that life begins and ends at the cell membrane. And when you have the proper fats, the building blocks for those cell membranes, all of a sudden, your fat-burning hormones can do its job. So you lose weight. All of a sudden, your cells produce energy, so you feel good. So we know that cellular health is key for performance and longevity. So I've been taking Pureform every single day. My dog takes it every single day. So does my girlfriend and my mom. This is how much I love the product. If you want to get your bottle delivered to your door, head over to purelifescience.com. Check them out, order a bottle or two, and you'll be amazed by how you feel after taking this just after a few days. That is purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4 to apply a $4 off coupon. That is BEN, B-E-N, and the number four. International shipping is available. Okay, let's go back into this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. What do you think the overall goal with it is? Because there's the the biggest vegan, you know, plant-based movement that I've ever seen. And it's becoming tougher for farmers who are producing meat, even quality meat, to get it out to people. They're they're higher, uh, their their costs are going up. Like a company, Bell Campbell, that I've used for a while, they just announced they're going out of business because of the challenges that they're having with their supply. So there is a push to make it tougher on farmers that are producing meat. And then there's uh, some profits or benefits for those who are doing more, you know, crops for wheat and corn and soy. Like, what do you think is the overall agenda with what's going on? We could spend an hour talking about this. There are a number of different motivations and coming from different different sectors. One of them, one of the earliest ones, was the animal rights movement. 
that really does just does not want people eating animals. And they come to us with that sort of ideological belief. So they have um, masked that belief in all kinds of nutritional concerns. They tend to be very active in publishing, you know, somebody like Michael Greger, who has who has a lot of information out there about the health effects of meat, but their main concern is animal rights. Then there's surprisingly the Seventh-day Adventist church, which has been quite influential in their Seventh-day Adventist studies. And they um, have a religious belief that people should eat a vegan diet. And that is part of their, um, it's just part of their teachings. And, And they are very much involved in nutrition science they have Loma Linda University, where most of their studies are. And they have, like in the most recent iteration of the dietary guidelines, one of the people on the expert committee appointed to the expert committee was a, a devout Seventh-day Adventist hmm. who is who has a religious bias. So, and then now we, I think we see, you know, this enormous investment by the food industry in plant-based foods. I mean, yeah. you're talking about an industry where, there's not a lot of, there's not vast profits to be made. It was a fairly stagnant field until what came along, all these plant-based you know, food replacement products like Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers and the plant-based milk. They are valued you know, at hundreds of millions of dollars. These are valuations far beyond what normal food companies have ever seen. So there is just a, a vast amount of money to be made. And then I think we also, there's the influence of the companies that are, um, you know, they're looking to kind of hop on the climate change bandwagon. And one of the things you can do and and deflect attention away from any other source of climate change, like gas or oil, which might be much harder to address, but to say, you know, to, to sort of pile on and say, look, we're on board with eliminating meat, right? That's a way to, for us to virtue signal and, and it sort of takes the spotlight off of our contribution to climate change. Yeah, and a lot of these vegan burgers have these vegetable oils in them, which are we establish it's not healthy. And it's interesting to hear some, you know, billionaires who are opposed to eating meat because of the climate, and they're flying around in their their jets. It just doesn't make any sense to me when when you see this happening. Uh, last thing on red meat before I have an interesting question, I'm going to ask you. Uh, last thing on red meat is heart disease. I mean, what does the research show show with red meat consumption and heart disease? Great. So red meat, this goes back to our saturated fat discussion. Red meat, the original reason that red meat was thought to cause heart disease was based on it, that the fact that it contains saturated fat and cholesterol. And as we discussed, there were more clinical trials on that particular scientific question. Do saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease? And the answer was no, we cannot, we do not have the data to support that hypothesis. Therefore, foods containing saturated fat and cholesterol don't cause heart disease. And that question has been more rigorously and extensively studied than almost any other scientific question in the history of nutrition science. And the answer was, you know, null results. We cannot find the data to support that hypothesis. Hmm. So, you know, that was the reason that we stopped eating red meat originally. And, and the data is just not, just never supported it. What can somebody do? I think one of the best things we can do is actually test on ourselves and, and make the transition and consume meat and maybe do some lab work. So if somebody wanted to do like a self-experiment to see if it's raising their risk of heart disease or lowering it, 
what are some lab markers that you you, were, you already mentioned a few, but what are some lab markers you would request they do? And then how often should they retest to see what is going on with their risk? Well, from epidemiological studies that look at risk factors, you know, there's a huge debate over which cardiovascular risk factors are the most reliable. Long-term studies have shown that of the things that are commonly measured, your HDL to triglyceride ratio is the best predictor of whether or not you're going to have a heart attack or die from heart disease. So you take your total triglycerides divided by HDL, and what do you want to see? You want to see, I mean, some people do it the reverse way. I mean, you want to see high HDL and low triglycerides. And what raises HDL is saturated fats. Mm -hmm. It's the only food that's really known to do that effectively. Yeah. And how do you get your triglycerides down? You reduce your carbohydrates. Your triglycerides are just fatty acids in your bloodstream. And it's not fat that creates the fat in your bloodstream. It's actually carbohydrates that convert into fat. So by increasing your consumption of saturated fat in whatever form, but in, you know, including meat, when reducing carbohydrates, you can get that ratio in a, in a really healthy spot. And actually, there was a great experiment done by Jeff Volek at Ohio State University where he showed he gradually increased the saturated fat in a meal, and he showed that um, it didn't have any effect on your triglycerides. Mm. Perfect. Yeah, I, I, I did a self-experiment where I did the carnivore diet, nothing but meat for 40 days. And I did my cholesterol panel. I did HDL, LDL, but LDL particles. So I looked at the small and the large. Right. Total cholesterol, C-reactive protein, homocysteine. I did a whole $3,500 panel on day one. And then I ate nothing but red meat, animal products, and saturated fat for 40 days. And my C-reactive protein, which is a, a marker that a lot of doctors look at for cardiovascular risk, went from 1.1 to 0.5, right? So that got cut in more than half. My HDL went up. Uh, it was already optimal, but it went up. I don't forget the exact numbers. My LDL did go up. However, the HDL went up with it, uh, to your point, was protective. But my homocysteine also dropped. My A1C dropped the point. So all of my inflammatory markers improved, although my LDL went up. So it was an interesting experiment just for myself doing that. Yeah, I, th I think that's a common story. And, I, uh, and the issue that people are going to have with their doctors is that if your LDL cholesterol goes up, then the doctor's going, the doctor focuses almost exclusively on LDL, typically because doctors have a drug for that, which is, you know, statins mm -hmm. and whatever the latest one is now. But <laughs> so they really focus on LDL. And the answer to that is that you do have to get an LDL extra panel to look at the particle size. And if you do that, you find that, and this has been found by exper in experimentally, um, in peer-reviewed pu publications, that the kind of LDL that goes up with saturated fat is called sort of the, the less dense kind, the kind of light, fluffy kind, as com and that is the good kind of LDL particle. So, I mean, if you want to go so far, I was originally just talking about things that are commonly measured, but um, it's really understood now that the LDL argument can't be held against saturated fats because it improves the type of LDL. Well said. Final question I have for you, and I'm curious to hear your answer here. I asked the same question to Dr. Kate Shanahan and a few other leaders in vegetable oil research. If somebody consumed either vegetable oils, smoked cigarettes every day, or processed sugar, out of those three options, which one would lead to disease faster, in your opinion? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm going to answer that a little circuitously, which is okay. I will tell you something that Gary Tabbs told me, which is that people smoked um, historically, you know, through uh, for hundreds of years, tobacco, but they did not get cancer or heart disease until the introduction of sugar. Mm. Now, it may be that there was something different about the tobacco or, I mean, they did get tumors, but they didn't spread and become cancerous. So I'm going to choose um, controversially based on that information, the cigarettes um, as the one thing that you might more safely do if you keep those, your sugar <laughs> content low, just based on that, on that data. I mean, it's really kind of fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. And we're not promoting smoking. So don't no, get that I mean, message. We're just lesser of evils here. So out of the sugar and the vegetable oils, which one would you choose? Which one is safer? Um, so I'm going to say that I think vegetable oils are safer. And I say that because I know Kate Shanahan would disagree with me. But yeah. I think that um, one of the things that is true in the community of people that are on low carbohydrate diets is that they see massive improvement. Many of them, but not all of them, see, can see a lot of improvement when they go on a ketogenic diet, even if that diet includes vegetable oils. Mm, that's a fair point. I know only a few stories, really, where somebody eliminated vegetable oils and saw that those kinds of improvements um, without eliminating sugar and things that turn to sugar. And we don't have clinical trials on it. Right. That's the other issue. You just have to go with the clinical trial data. And that is really on the side of reduction of, of, of carbohydrates. And of course, these are all like hypothetical questions, but let's add a nuance to the question. <laughs> and I know this is kind of crazy, to, but that's okay. It's, it's fun. It's fun to ask these questions. As long as your listeners understand, like we're, you know, we're just, nobody's recommending cigarettes and we're not recommending, you know, anything bad for you. So let's say same question, vegetable oils, sugar, but the person consuming sugar is very active and burning off that sugar and not letting it get to a point where it's stored in, in, in excess. They're active and burning it off. Would you change your answer or would it be the same answer? Would still, you think vegetable oils would be um, safer? I know that people can get diabetes even if they're iron men or women triathletes, if they're living on sugar. I mean, the famous story, I mean, two founders of companies, Sammy Inkinen, who founded Verda, and also um, less well-known, but Susie, um, who founded Love Good Fat Bars. Susie, they were originally Susie Good Fat Bars, a fantastic keto bar. They were, they, he, he was an Iron Man. I think he won Iron Man competitions, and she was an Iron Woman. And they both became, she became overweight. He became nearly diabetic. And so they were exercising a lot, but they still could not process all those sugars that they were ingesting. So yeah. those are so it's anecdotal. And I don't know if there's good clinical trial data on that. Actually. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> and Professor Tim Noakes as well, same story. Um, I think he was a triathlon. Yeah, so great. Thank you for answering that. Hypothetical uh, questions there. Last thing is where can my audience, the Keto Campers, learn more about you and the work that you're doing, Nina? Well, thanks for asking. I'm most active on Twitter at Big Fat Surprise. And I also run a group called the Nutrition Coalition, which is the only group in the world trying to be a watchdog and change nutrition policy so that it's evidence-based. And so you can go there and learn just like why it's so important to change 
our nutrition policy because it affects so many of us. Just think school lunches, feeding mm-hmm. programs. I mean, everything is affected by our nutrition policy. And then I have a private website, ninataishals.com, which is a little out of date. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that's basically the places where I am online. We'll put all that down below. And the Nutrition web, the Nutrition Coalition website is nutritioncoalition.us, which we'll yes. drop uh, below and we'll drop a link for your book. Uh, any plans to write a new book in the future for you? Yes, I'm just in the early stages of writing a book on on the plant-based diet and where that came from and mm. if that's good for you, which is much of what we've talked about today. Like, why is it so popular if there's really not data to support it? Mm, that's going to be very controversial. I can't yeah, wait to read right. that one. <laughs> uh, and yeah, post that fish oil chapter, please. And let me know yeah. about that. Uh, Nina, thank you for your dedication, your research, and just taking the arrows and just pushing forward with what you believe to be true. Uh, I'm grateful for you. I'm glad we had this conversation. I think our audience really loved it. And uh, for those who want to learn more, go check out the links down below. And again, Nina, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, it's been really fun talking to you. So thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with the amazing Nina Teicholtz. We're going to put a link for her book, The Big Fat Surprise, in the podcast notes. We're also going to put a link for her organization, The Nutrition Coalition. If you want to contribute, donate, learn about that, we'll put that down below along with her website, her resources, and detailed notes of everything we spoke about. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider sharing it with somebody you know today. Simply copy and paste the link on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast and send it in a text message or in a Facebook messenger or Instagram messenger, DM, send it to somebody, send it to multiple people. Let's get the word out. And if you haven't left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcast, please do so right now. I want to thank you so much for listening to the entire episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. Hey, I'll see you on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.